0: Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates cult classic and current films. Hi, I'm Steve Rubin, and here it's always Saturday night. Uh, I'm very excited about tonight's show because we get to dip into one of the great mysteries of human existence, the Roswell story out of New Mexico. And as my guest tonight, I have Paul Davids with us. Hi, Paul.
1: Hello, Steve.
0: Paul, is, I've known Paul for over 20 years, and Paul is a filmmaker. He's an author. He's uh, he's a wonderful, fine artist. Uh, we met in the late 1990s when he came on over to Showtime, where I was working and produced the movie Roswell, the only movie, only narrative movie not documentary ever done on the purported Roswell's flying saucer crash. And we're going to be talking about that quite a bit tonight because I consider Roswell a a cult film. And for me personally, a classic. And I'm excited to have Paul here. And Paul, you've actually finally moved out of Los Angeles. Isn't that true?
1: I did. Uh, My wife and I have moved to Sedona, Arizona a place that we have uh, absolutely loved uh, since we discovered it in the late 1980s. And uh, with my wife having retired from her senior vice president position at Universal Pictures, uh, we were no longer attached to Los Angeles and unable to uh, pick up and go. And so we found a wonderful place in Sedona and we are ensconced.
0: Now, being a fine artist, I think of Sedona being an art colony. Is that accurate?
1: There are fabulous artists here in Sedona. Uh, As a matter of fact, I've become rather good friends with Alan Walton, who is a great master impressionist. And I think there are probably dozens of serious artists here.
0: Oh, that's fabulous. now, I've never been to Sedona. Is this what you consider desert climate?
1: Well, it's called high desert. So uh, it's not what most people would think of as a desert. We're, we're at uh, between 4,000 and
0: 4,500 feet. Oh, got it.
1: So are, are are
0: you currently, are you in snow at the moment?
1: No, we have no snow. We had just a little bit of flurries a week ago. But uh, no, it's like spring here right now.
0: Oh, fabulous. Well, I. <clears throat> I love Arizona and that whole area. Of course, I'm kind of a child of the desert because I've, um, I always tell this story that my family trip every year when I was growing up was, uh, my dad was a card player and loved to go to Las Vegas. So my very first trips as a, a child were in the car crossing the Mojave from Los Angeles to get to Las Vegas. And there was just something mysterious about the desert. Now, this coincided with me going down to my the- local theater. I lived across the street from the old stadium, Fox West Coast Stadium near Pico and Robertson, and they had those Saturday morning kitty matinees back in the late 50s and early 60s, and invariably they took place in the desert, and uh, there was something mysterious and crazy about the desert, and then of course, I'm going to the desert to Las Vegas, so it's an interesting amalgam. But you know, you and I are kindred spirits because we're both fascinated by the unknown and some of the great mysteries of life, and particularly the whole UFO uh, experience. And I was, I wanted, I remember you and I talking back in the '90s when you were making Roswell that you had a formative experience in actual Los Angeles. Didn't you see a UFO right in your neighborhood?
1: I did uh, in broad daylight with my two children. It was February 25th, 1987. My kids were nine years old and six years old. And it was as clear as a truck on a street. A classic flying saucer dome disc approached our house uh, descended from a dramatic, cloud-filled sky at around four in the afternoon, we went out on the roof to watch it, and you know, it, it was a—it was an astonishing moment for me because uh, I had not been deeply involved uh, in any way with uh, UFOs or flying saucers up to that point. But with what I saw, I knew these were real, and I dove into studying everything I could about them, reading every book I could get my hands on. And it was during that process of reading so many books, it must have been, well, more than 100, in the months after that sighting that I came across the uh, Roswell incident for the first time. And uh, it was uh, actually Roy Thinness, the actor uh, from um, the Invaders television show
0: Sure, remember it well. David (laughs) Vincent.
1: Yeah, that was the character that he played. He's the one that first uh, introduced me to the Roswell case. And uh, he did a report for the Center for UFO Studies in Chicago, J. Allen Hynek Center, uh, about our sighting. And at that time, Don Schmidt, I'm sure you know, you remember from our movie. Of course. Don uh, was then the Director of Special Investigations for the Center for UFO Studies in Chicago. And he ended up coming out to my house and having me describe everything, walk through it. He talked to my kids, did a report for the center. And at that time, he told me that he and an associate, Kevin Randall, who was, uh, had been in the Air Force, Uh, I think he was in the reserve at that point and uh, had been in Air Force intelligence. And the two of them intended to reinvestigate the Roswell incident, which happened in 1947. It was about, the incident was about 70 miles from Roswell, New Mexico, which at that time was the home of one of the main military bases uh, in the U.S. It was the only base at that time that had the atomic bomb, and had the planes to fly them out. So that's how my interest in the Roswell incident began.
0: I'm curious how you, uh, you mentioned that Roy Finnis was the one who introduced you to Roswell. What was the context? Did you meet him in any specific place?
1: Yeah, it was, again, really interesting. Um, my wife, who, as I have explained, worked at Universal doing the premieres. She had gotten to know director Robert Wise, one of Hollywood's uh, greatest directors. He directed uh, not only West Side Story and The Sound of Music, but uh, he also directed The Day the Earth Stood Still, one of the formative flying saucer UFO movies uh, from, I think it was about
0: 1951.
1: Exactly, exactly. Pla-tou, After sighting.
0: Plateau barana Nicto.
1: That was it. After our sighting, um, she knew of Robert Wise's interest in UFOs. And she got in touch with him and she set up a meeting for me to go see Robert Wise at his office. And we talked at length. Um, he was the one that introduced me to Roy Thinnes. After our meeting, he actually got in touch with Roy Thinnis and suggested to Roy that he come see me. So it was fascinating to see that Robert Wise um, was sure that the interplanetary craft or saucers did exist. And what gave him a problem was the fact that the information was being concealed by the government. He, he didn't really grasp why. He disagreed with uh, what we've come to call the cover-up, or some call the truth embargo. But there is this truth embargo. It's real. It's very, very troublesome to those who have uh, a knowledge of the subject. And I'm sure that's something we're gonna get into. But one of the key aspects of the Roswell story was that everything about it was covered up within about 24 hours of the military getting involved.
0: So for, those of, for the listeners who aren't versed in Roswell, why don't you give us the, uh, the bullet points of what happened in that summer of 1947 from the moment that, uh, I guess, there was an explosion over uh, some farmland.
1: Right, there was a ranch. Well, this happened uh, in early July. And we need to remember that it was late June of 1947 that pilot, private pilot Kenneth Arnold saw seven disk-like craft flying over Mount Rainier and reported this very unusual craft. And when he described it to the reporters and he said that they were like, um, like a saucer skipping across water. Um, A reporter said, you mean like a flying saucer? That was where the term came from. So the term came into our uh, use, you know, uh, maybe about 10 days to two weeks before the Roswell incident happened. What happened in Roswell was that uh, a rancher out in very isolated ranch lands, they didn't even have phones there going uh, to uh, the city of Roswell. Rancher discovered an enormous amount of debris on his ranch uh, the morning after an an enormously intense lightning storm. And we found out later from one of the military people who investigated, the first person to investigate, Major Jesse Marcel, that the debris field was uh, about three quarters of a mile long. I think he said about a quarter of a mile why? There was debris everywhere. And uh, the military found out about it when the rancher took some of this debris and took it into town, took it to the sheriff's office. He had heard about flying saucers. In fact, there was a, a reward being offered for anybody who uh, could uh, provide a physical uh, proof of a down crash. And uh, so, That was the focus. The sheriff contacted the military base. They sent out Jesse Marcel to the field, uh, along with Sheridan Cavett, who was a counterintelligence officer who reported to the Pentagon. And the base on, on Colonel Blanchard's instructions, Colonel Blanchard was the base commander. They released a press release saying that a a flying saucer, flying disc had been recovered uh, at a ranch in the Roswell region. And this was electrifying to the public, except for the fact that the base retracted the story within 24 hours and said, you know what, it was all a mistake, this was just a downed weather balloon. Well, we know from a whole long list of military people, but that was a cover story, they didn't want to release the story in detail. Um, On second thoughts, they didn't want to admit that they had the hardware. And Colonel Thomas Jefferson DuBose, who was the adjutant to General Roger Ramey in Dallas-Fort Worth, Uh, has told us, along with many other people, that uh, the downed material was not a weather balloon, that was a cover story to get the press off their back, that it was absolutely remarkable material, that parts of it were immediately sent to Washington, uh, Andrews Air Force Base, and other locales. And the people involved were all sworn to secrecy. Even Jesse Marcel didn't say anything to his family.
0: This this material that was recovered, I've read several of the Schmidt-Randall books. It's referred to several times as memory metal. And for the way I I gather, and of course you have it, of course, in your film, is the fact that it was like a tinfoil substance that you could ball up in your fingers, but it would completely unball itself and become perfectly straight. Is that what you Yeah. uh,
1: yeah, it's called it's called uh, memory metal, and right. um, I think well, research was uh, done on this by the Bechtel Corporation uh, after the Roswell incident, and uh, yeah, today I think it's it's called nitinol nit- is a is a memory metal. At that time, they didn't know anything about that. But that was one of the substances that was recovered from the crash site. Uh, also recovered was material that had strange writing on it that uh, Jesse Marcel's son talked about because he, he had an opportunity to see it late the night that his father came home.
0: Now, now this, uh, this incident uh, took place in 1947. Your yeah. movie comes out, I think, was it 96?
1: 1994.
0: 1994. So, for, let's see, that's 47 years later. How, why do you think it took so long to get a Roswell movie going?
1: Well, the first thing to know is that everyone involved was sworn to secrecy. Not not only were they uh, warned not to talk about it or confirm anything about it, all the military people, but townspeople who knew about the details were actually threatened. This thing was covered up and buried. Someone at a very high level wanted this thing uh, erased from the public consciousness, and they did a very good job of that because uh, it, it didn't even show up in discussions of UFOs for a very long time until I think it was in the mid-1980s, Jesse Marcel uh, came forward and said, I'm not going to keep the secret anymore. I'm going to tell the truth. This was material that was not made on Earth. It couldn't have been. He said, I, I, I've been familiar with every Uh, piece of aviation material, and uh, it was nothing like that, he said. So that started, that opened the door, and then you had...
0: By by the way, Paul, I have to say, being aware of all this over the years, that Jesse Marcel is one of, for me, one of the key witnesses in this whole thing, because this wasn't a a standard enlisted man who went out in a jeep and thought he saw something. This is an air force intelligence officer trained to recognize uh, what are established, uh, you know, materials. And I think that no, I working,
1: always, working at a base that had the nuclear bomb.
0: Right. I mean, in this, America. this, this is the only U S base in the United States in the world, perhaps, I guess that's true. That was flying nuclear bombers. Uh, yeah, no, that, that Jesse's testimony has always been quite extraordinary. So so walk us through how you got this movie going.
1: Well, that was a long and, and difficult process. Um, I mean, my involvement started with my intense conviction that the story needed to be told. Uh, I, I wanna say that at the time I began working on it, you know, the the general public, they didn't know where Roswell was, what its importance was. Uh, It hadn't become a trigger word. Uh, There had been one book written about this called The Roswell Incident, and Randall and Schmidt were at work on another book called UFO Crash at Roswell, which was released while we made the movie. And uh, So I I just want to emphasize how unheard of this was by the uh, general public. In fact, when we finally got the green light to make the movie, uh, the executives at Showtime were not happy with the title Roswell. And I was asked to come up with 20 other titles that they could choose from. And I argued, I said, look, you should call this Roswell. It's going to be a trigger word like the word Chernobyl. You say Chernobyl and everybody knows what you're talking about, a nuclear disaster. And someday the word Roswell will be connected with uh, extraterrestrial life, coming to earth and authorities concealing that truth. So I won that battle. I I deliberately gave them 20 awful titles (laughs) that they didn't like. So they finally conceded uh, the point. But to get the movie made was, really difficult. It was a long process. Uh, It started with me doing an option with Randall and Schmidt for the rights to their unwritten book. Uh, Option their outline. They were then at work on the book and I had the right to shop it around. I wrote a first draft script and then uh, I took the script to many uh, networks, production companies, studios, this would have begun in about 1989, about two years after my sighting. I had the script. I had all the information. Uh, I had been to Roswell with Randall and Schmidt. I knew it was real. And the attitude in Hollywood was, it can't be real. Because it was real, we would have heard of it. Uh, Everybody, felt that way. And they turned it down again and again and again. They said, look, uh, this is probably a hoax. We don't want to get involved with the hoax. I said, we have enormous documentation on this. We have eyewitness testimony. We can show this actually happened. Um, And it's massively important. But by and large, at that point, Hollywood did not believe that there was a cover-up They loved UFOs as science fiction. There had been many great science fiction films made, but they weren't prepared to deal with a movie that claimed to be based on actual events that said aliens had landed here and the government is lying to us by denying that that happened and withholding all the relevant facts about it. That was the wall of denial that I had to crack through. And for a couple of years, it was impossible. Um, And then things changed.
0: Excuse me, did you try to get it to Steven Spielberg?
1: No, I didn't have a contact to Steven Spielberg at that point. I didn't. I went through, uh, you know, had a lot of contacts in the business. As I said, my wife was a senior VP at Universal. uh, But in doing premieres, she was not uh, in the department that would decide what movies they're going to make. She sure. was outside of that, but she knew a lot of producers that I did take it to, and I I'm saved their rejection letters, and then at a certain point, things changed, and let me, you want, should I go into that, why it changed? Sure,
0: sure, no, absolutely.
1: Well, I had been one of the first fellows at the American Film Institute Center for Advanced Film Studies, opening year, 1969, at the Greystone Mansion in Beverly Hills, and they had chosen... Uh, uh, about a, I think it was 18 or 20 first year students on full fellowship. It was an extraordinary opportunity. I was chosen right out of college when I graduated Princeton. So I, um, while there, met many students who went on to become extremely famous. You know who were in my class or the next class. Uh, but one of my friends from that era uh, was a direct was a Jeremy Kagan. Um, And he had, by the time I hooked up with him again, which would have been about 19, uh, say 1990, uh, he had directed probably around five films, he had done a lot of television, he had directed a Columbo sequence, Uh, he did the Scott Joplin story, The Journey of Natty Gann, uh, a film called Heroes, he had a track record, more of a track record than I did at that point. Although I had done some really interesting stuff working for Marvel, I was production coordinator of all the Transformers cartoons. So I was in the business. Anyway, uh, Jeremy, Jeremy and I got together uh, at a party for the, the former Dean of the American Film Institute Center for Advanced Film Studies, Frank Daniel from Czechoslovakia. He had uh, retired and we, it was a birthday party for him. So a lot of the old fellows came. And I pitched Jeremy the Roswell story, and he immediately was fascinated with it. Not because, not in being a believer in UFOs or even that the story was true. It didn't have to be true for him to be a really interesting human story because what he saw in it was this. Jesse Marcel kept that secret for 30 years. After he was ridiculed, as being the military buffoon who couldn't tell the difference between a weather balloon and something crashed from outer space. And Jesse Marcel had to carry that silently, that ridicule for 30 years until he came forward and said, it's time to end this cover up. So Jeremy loved it being a human story with Jesse Marcel being at the focus of it. And he was in a position to set up a deal at HBO. That was our first step. We did make a deal through Jeremy at HBO. Um, He was a producer, I was executive producer. Uh, They hired us to write a treatment version because they weren't gonna go and put my script into production. Uh, They wanted a slightly different approach. And so we had a deal at HBO. They assigned a fabulous writer, Arthur Coppett, who passed away recently, as a matter of fact. Uh, he's a famous American playwright, extraordinary talent. He was under contract to HBO to do around four or five films for them. And they assigned him to write the screenplay for Roswell, the shooting script. And we worked with him. We worked with him for, it was about a year and a half. It went through eight drafts. We were so frustrated because HBO kept asking for more changes. They weren't. <clears throat> giving the go ahead to Arthur's script. And <clears throat> excuse me, some of the higher-ups at HBO wanted to undertake their own investigation of the Roswell case while we were working on the script because they felt if somebody can disprove this, they didn't want to be involved. And they hired a fellow to do the investigation from Washington who I'm sure was connected with the Pentagon. I'm sure uh got pulled in there as a debunker. He did a terrible so-called investigation. Uh, and what he had to say was discouraging to them. And eventually, HBO turned down our project after we'd worked on it a year and a half, after they'd spent a lot of money on the writing. Uh, and we were out in the cold. We had no movie. It, I was, I'd never been so depressed in my life after fighting so hard to get this made. And then, then Steve, everything turned around again. (laughs) I don't know if you have another question before I tell you why it turned around again.
0: No, no, this is fascinating to me. Keep going.
1: All right, so what happened was Eileen Khan, who was a producer, connected with HBO, but her contract didn't require her to do everything for HBO. So when HBO said they were no longer interested in our movie, they said they would rather make uh, the attack of the fifty-foot woman with Daryl Hannah—that would be their flying saucer movie. Instead of making Roswell, <laughs> I was devastated. But Eileen said, "Look, I know people at Showtime. Maybe we can get them to do it." And she—we'd uh, had eight drafts of script, <clears throat> and the draft I loved was number five. And I felt when they pushed Arthur to do six, seven, and eight drafts with uh, with their lousy ideas that they, by the time was draft eight, they had ruined the movie. So Eileen said, what should I show them? I said, draft number five. She took that to them with the book UFO Crash at Roswell. And they uh, they started reading it at a, uh, not the highest level, but she called me in a couple of weeks and said, you know, so-and-so likes it there. It's getting kicked upstairs. I was so discouraged at that point. I, I had a negative attitude like, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, right. Who,
0: uh, who was the point person at Showtime at that time for the project?
1: You know, uh, the earliest point person.
0: Was it, was it Joan
1: Borstein? No, it wasn't. It, 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 it was a lady. I remember her first name was Barbara. I don't remember. Oh, Barbara name. Tidal. That was it. Yeah, yeah, Barbara
0: Title was running Showtime at that time. I mean, she was the key creative there. When I, when I got to Showtime in 92, um, uh, they were going through some transition. Uh, they they were not known for movies, uh, although they made some rather low-budget exploitation kind of – I won't call them totally sleazy, but they were <laughs> kind of late-night uh, thriller types, Um And then uh, Barbara came on board and she got, I think she had a kind of a classy sense of taste. I think that's who you were dealing with.
1: Yes. Barbara liked it. She kicked it upstairs. And soon I got a call from Eileen saying, look, everybody at Showtime has read it. They all like it. They want to do it. And I was flabbergasted. I mean, that was one of the greatest days in my life to hear that. But there were a lot of buts attached to it, OK? Um, I did hear right away the very promising news that they wanted to boost the budget from what HBO was willing to spend. HBO had kept cutting our budget to the point that we didn't know how we were going to make it. Showtime upped the budget <clears throat> substantially. Uh, and she said, but you guys are going to have to take a salary cut in your contract. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> we agreed. Jeremy and I agreed to that and but everybody was happy and and finally randall and schmidt got pe- paid uh, some good money and but there was still a big butt attached to this contract this deal <clears throat> and that was we had to find an actor to play jesse marcel that they wanted that they would agree to because for them this was going to be what they called a tentpole movie right That then <clears throat> it's like a summer tentpole like it, oh, it's the tent the pole that Holds up the studio, you know, for the summer. They were going to publicize it like crazy. They were going to make it so everyone in the country knew there was this movie coming called Roswell. By the way, later when they released it on video and DVD, they they added the subtitle, what was Roswell, the UFO cover-up. But originally the movie was just released as Roswell. And this was before there was that Roswell television series. It right. was uh, not serious, you know, it was more of a uh, science fiction spoof kind of thing. Uh, ours was the serious movie where we were taking the testimony of the people that were there and we were dramatizing it and we were trying, what we wanted to say to the world is this happened. You haven't heard of it, but it really happened. Here's how they put the cover up into effect. And they've been lying to you about it ever since. So we wanted to be that breakthrough, you know, like the China syndrome, let's say, or, uh, you know, some of the other films that have, um, let's say, um, broken through almost like a whistleblower to bring something to the public consciousness that was really important. You know, All the President's Men, Watergate. Well, this, this Roswell is on that scale
0: given given how paranoid film executives can be, and obviously the HBO people went a little bit overboard, was there ever that concern at showtime that the government might intercede and try to stop the picture?
1: You know, they had a very um, sort of ballsy attitude, which we loved. I think they didn't they didn't care. It was like they they, you know, if this was going to taunt the government and flaunt this in their face, They were going to go for it. Um, What I heard was that uh, all of these uh, people, the higher ups at Showtime, personally believed that this had happened. They had heard about it before. Uh, They believed that there was a cover up. However, they made us make the film in a way that left a little window of ambiguity. So that was okay that 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 was okay. None of us has the debris from the flying saucer to hold up. And although I will say that I want to say that the government has military has continued to issue false stories about this. it's It's been almost an act of desperation for them to withhold the truth. <clears throat> and I think that that's starting to crumble regarding UFOs, now they call them UAP unidentified aerial phenomena, it's starting to crumble with the release of some information, but they're only going back to around 2004. They don't want to talk about anything that happened before that. They're ignoring everything that happened before that. So, Now, it's, um,
0: it's, it's 27 years since the movie came out. Um, looking back at the film today, how do you feel about Jeremy's work on it?
1: It was masterful. Jeremy is a, is a brilliant man, he's an intellectual. He comes from a long line of rabbis, by the way, <laughs> and uh, he has a very great sense of humanity. I admire him so much, and we've been friends ever since to this day. Um, I think the film came out extremely well. I, I wouldn't want to change it for what it was. I keep hearing from people that it opened their eyes that they've seen it 10 times. By the way, it's a little bit hard to find today. I think it, it's been somewhat suppressed in recent years. Uh, they yeah, haven't put it show, show, for streaming.
0: Yeah, Please. Showtime Showtime made a bushel of original movies uh, there. In fact, after Barbara left, Jerry Offsay came in as the president of programming and they were starting to greenlit 30 movies a year. So they went whole bananas into the film business Uh, But but a lot of those films have not popped up popped up on home video, so I'm not surprised. I
1: I can I interrupt and just say that Roswell uh, was released on home video before there was DVD. There was a there was a a contract with, I think, Republic Pictures. And then they did a contract, I think it was with Lionsgate, actually, to do a DVD. it, it was a it was a well made DVD. I think the cinematographer was uh, wasn't uh, wasn't thrilled with the transfer or something like that. And and of course they reduced our widescreen. You know, we shot it widescreen, and he thought for the DVD it should have been released widescreen, but they kept it in the television s- sort of square format. But there was the DVD. It was out there, and it was a ten year contract. It sold a lot of DVDs in that 10 years. And it was at the Roswell UFO Museum. It was a big seller there. But when the contract was over, they did not issue any other contract. You just had to look for a used one. It wasn't available anymore. And that, you know, that ended, uh, it's hard for me to remember the year. I'm sure it's been at least 15 years now since that ended. and. They never put it online for streaming, and they never made the DVD available again. Uh, I know that all those those Showtime films, they were produced through Viacom. I think it was CBS that took over all those uh, television movies from Viacom, and Paramount got the features. And uh, CBS just uh, uh, shut the door on further exposure of the movie, which is terrible. It's terrible, but I'm going to say that uh, all of the major networks participated in withholding this information, covering up, having false documentaries, and uh, participating in the stream of official lies about it for decades, and our film challenged all of that, so I don't know if that has anything to do with the fact that the film sort of disappeared. I mean, you can find it now on Vimeo. I think if you Google Roswell, the UFO cover-up, you will find it online. It had terrific stars in it, by the way. It, It had Kyle MacLachlan of Twin Peaks. It had Martin Sheen. It had Dwight Yoakam in one of his first roles, Charles Martin Smith. We had quite a cast, and it was nominated by the Hollywood Foreign Press as best motion picture for television of 1994. So Why can't you find it now unless you go out looking for some pirated copy? I'm
0: I'm glad you mentioned the cast because I think one of its strong points, and obviously Jeremy Kagan knew how to work with actors. And there's a kind of a docudrama feel of realism about the performances that I, I always enjoyed. I was curious, and I won't give away anything for people who still haven't seen it, and hopefully people will get a chance to see it. But Martin Sheen comes into the story kind of late. And I was curious, his character reminded me a little bit of the Donald Sutherland character in- uh, A.F.K. Yeah, Yeah. And now was Martin Sheen's character in Arthur's scripts or was that added later?
1: No, no, that was in Arthur's scripts. As a matter of fact, Jeremy and I came up with the fact that that character who we called Townsend had to be in the movie. And uh, I'll, explain, I'll explain why. But first, I'd like to say that the movie was structured as a flashback. It began um, in, um, um, let's see, it would have been 1986. It began uh, when Jesse Marcel was at that point in his life when he was thinking of going public with the story, but he hadn't yet. And we knew that there had been reunions at the military base in Roswell. It was called Walker Airfield at one point. And uh, we decided to use the, the, the dramatic device of a reunion at the base as the key structural point for the movie. So we started with him as an old man going back to see the guys he had served in the military with all those years ago. And he goes back with the intention Of pulling information out of them about what happened, what really happened, and the parts of the story that he didn't know, because he'd never gotten over the humiliation that he was forced to suffer by being the fall guy in the cover-up. So, most of the characters, the ones he meets along the way, um, are people that really gave testimony about this. Louis Rickett, who uh, you know confirmed everything, and and. um, uh, the uh, the uh, K- KGFL was the radio station there, the head of the radio station, and uh, there were r- reporters from back then and other military people, and as a matter of fact, eventually, we know that Colonel Blanchard eventually uh, confessed uh, to, uh, I believe the first name was Chester, Chester Lytle, that it was aliens that crashed there. He told an extremely reputable man with a military background that there had been a cover-up, it was extraterrestrial, there were aliens. We know that this happened, you see. But here was the problem and why we introduced this uh, nefarious uh, character, Townsend, that was played by Martin Sheen. There was a document released in the late 1980s called the MJ-12 document which appeared on the surface to be uh, something that had been a secret memo, eyes only memo to um, President-elect Eisenhower when he was about to take office, informing him about the Roswell crash and the evidence that there are aliens and that we're being visited, and that this had been held secret by orders of President Truman. This document has been the subject of speculation ever since. I mean, decades. Uh, If it is a fake, no one has ever come forward to claim that they're behind it. Um, There have been arguments on both sides. But this document went farther in the Roswell story than any information that we had from the military men who were the whistleblowers. It claimed, I'm trying to remember whether the document itself said that one of the aliens was uh, alive, but I think that that was a part of the story. And it it uh, talked about all the people of the MJ12 committee who had been assigned to oversee the cover up, and one of them was a former Secretary of War Forrestal, who died under very mysterious circumstances. He was at the naval medical hospital in Bethesda, having a nervous breakdown. And the, the rumor was that uh, he wanted to expose the Roswell case and the government still wanted to cover it covered up. And he fell to his death from the top story of that uh, hospital room. Well, uh, suspicious, all right. But there were a lot of these aspects of the story particularly the idea that um, there had been subsequent visits by aliens, that there had been meetings and contacts between government people and these aliens. These were aspects of the story that we couldn't confirm. They were were clouded in uh, a mystery and based on a document nobody could say was real. We wanted to get this information into the story, but we didn't want to do it in a way that said that this we know is as real as everything else. We wanted to shroud it in ambiguity. And that's why we created this mysterious character, Townsend, who shows up at the reunion and snoops around and listens, overhears Jesse Marcel's questions to other people and knows what Jesse is doing. And he approaches Jesse at one point and he says, look, I'm gonna tell you the rest of the story. And he tells them all these things about the subsequent visits from aliens and the extent to which this has been covered up and that one of the aliens was alive. Tells them all of this. And when Jesse wants it confirmed, um, that Townsend won't confirm it. He plays with them. He says, you know, look, uh, I've told you the whole thing. Uh, you don't have any proof that what I've told you is true. Go take it to the New York Times. See what they say. Tell it to anybody you want. Uh, and Jesse says to him, oh, "Come on, what was it I saw out in that field?" And we wrote this line for Townsend at that part where he turns to Jesse and he says, "Why that? That was a weather balloon." So you know, at that point, you know this guy Townsend is a secret agent. That he is, while promoting or preserving the cover-up, he's leaking a lot of stuff that nobody can prove whether or not it's true. So we're We're left with this expanded mystery. And that was, you know, Showtime wanted that uh, approach so that um, we open the window on all of this stuff, but uh, some of this stuff may not be true that are part of the myth, the lore, what's become legend. But most of the basics of the story, I know that's true. A lot of us know that's true. And we know that the government continues to release false stories about it.
0: Well, what was interesting for me, and the listeners who are not versed in this, uh, in addition to the rather large debris field, which had the memory metal in it, there mm-hmm. was a second crash site. And in, in mm-hmm. at that, that crash site, uh, there was supposedly a partially uh, destroyed saucer with bodies, and uh, yes. over the years... I mean, what's fascinating about this story, once you read the Schmidt and Randall books, and they interviewed everybody who had a pulse uh, for 30 years, and uh, the cover-up was fascinating. But what was interesting for me in reading these books is all the traffic between the debris sites and the base and the fact that this saucer was eventually brought in. Another one of those great stories, and I, I, it's obviously—I mean, not obviously—but it's beautifully dramatized in your movie, is that the coroner in Roswell on the night the bodies are brought in gets a call to provide small coffins, and that—that uh, you don't make that up out of uh, you know a whole cloth. That's the kind of right. information that leads you to believe that these—this was not just a bunch of uh, weird. Tin foil that was brought onto the base, but actual living creatures. I've heard so many stories over the years because I've really, I've studied it a little bit, not as much as you, of course, but I've been fascinated by it. And um, the um, there's so many people attached to this. I had a friend in Hollywood whose, whose friend was the daughter of one of the guys involved in the cover-up. And then he, he told her on his deathbed, so it was one of those dying declarations, Yes. That, were, were, that he was part of a motor convoy to Wright-Patterson back to Ohio with those bodies, that they weren't sent by plane, and they were actually misdirected, they, those, that was a misdirection, they, right. they sent it by truck, and, then, and then, then there was another story, I'm not sure if it was the same gal who told me, but she said that she visited uh, the Wright-Patterson base with her father, uh, I don't know exactly when, and saw one of the bodies. I, I don't know if the body was alive or not, but these stories, of course, are fascinating. And over the years, uh, uh, they've they made the Roswell legend uh, such an amazing one.
1: There, there is a continuing debate about whether one of the, uh, the bodies, whether one of the aliens was uh, alive. Oh, in our movie, we have Townsend tell that there was a living alien and that uh, there were attempts of communication made, and that this alien let them know that more of them would be coming. Um, I personally, I don't know whether that part of the story is true. I, I, I have heard that, yes, there were four, there were four bodies recovered. Uh, there were guards put on those, on those bodies. I've heard it from one of the guards who was actually there. Uh, Don Schmidt arranged for me to hear that testimony at the uh, Museum of Nuclear Energy, I think, in New Mexico. Uh, And we also know from Chester Lytle's uh, description of what he was told by uh, Colonel Blanchard, the base commander at Roswell, that there were bodies uh, recovered that were not human. Whether one of them really was alive or whether that whole part of the story is myth, I'm not prepared to go there, you know, myself to say I believe one way or the other. But I think the important thing is that uh, I I feel that we, the public, have been victims in this. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the government has its rules for secrecy and for deciding what can affect the national security and what they're going to cover up. And, you know, so you could say, what do you mean you're a victim? You know, the government has the right to decide what's the best interest in the country, you know, not to reveal. And they decided they didn't want to reveal this. Well, I feel really, uh, really badly that they've kept that, let's call it a lie. It's a lie. They've kept that official lie going, you know, forever. And are they ever going to surrender it? Because I think the public has a right to know that not only are we not alone in this universe, but aliens have come here, they still come here, they have craft doing things in the air, we call them UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, that our military can't duplicate. They've begun to concede that officially through certain Navy vi- videos, there's been a lot about this, stories in the New York Times, this has all been within the last two to three years. But, uh, so maybe they'll never tell the whole story. But well, I, one of
0: the uh, one of the things that I found interesting is um and this I I think this is uh something that's been told a few times is that after the Orson Welles broadcast in 38 when the uh, when the east coast panicked and war was, of the worlds
1: the war of the worlds, war, worlds radio the worlds.
0: exactly that the uh, government did some of their own thinking and decided that if the American public ever discovered that these UFOs were real, that uh, they would no longer, uh, (laughs) I don't know if people would run to the hills, but there was a certain concern that people would stop paying their taxes, stop- Well, they felt
1: it would definitely cause uh, social disruption. There was a Brookings Institute report done on this for uh, Congress, I think in 1965, about the, it was called about the peaceful applications of uh, discoveries from space. But they even, that committee um, on the Brookings Report even went so far as to say that as we visit the moon, because this was 1965, it was four more years till we got to the moon, they said if, if we find even remnants of some ancient civilization there, that uh, this should probably be withheld from the public until there had been enough preparation of the public to be able to accept it without social disruption because they felt it would impact on religion, scientists would be demoralized, um, it could uh, affect um, faith in the dollar and the 30-year mortgage and you know cause financial chaos. They had all of these reasons why they felt it should be secret. Now, a new reason that I think that the secrecy has been maintained uh, has become very clear by um, uh, uh, military, uh, former military man, Captain Robert Salas, who has held a, a couple of press conferences on this, the National Press Club in Washington, that there are now military people doing the whistleblowing who had been involved with our international, our intercontinental ballistic missiles. The people in the silos who had the responsibility to push the button if the president ever ordered it. And Salas was one of those people. And he and others have come forward to say not only are the UFO's real, not only have they uh, done surveillance of our nuclear bases, but they have actually put our missiles, our ICBMs carrying nuclear weapons, put them out of commission, 10 missiles at a time as a a kind of a show of what they can do, put the fear of God into us, but that it's happened again and again. It happened at the the, uh, Minot base in North Dakota, happened at the Malmstrom base, uh, Montana. And so if you're the military and aliens are shutting down one of the main strategic weapons of our defense, you want that to get out to the public? Well, it is getting out to the public through these whistleblowers, and they're very credible people. I think that this is one of the reasons also that the story has been kept secret and continues to be secret, that they were well, afraid I, I, of this confession uh, that this is fact.
0: Well, what I would hope, uh, and uh, obviously with a little levity here, uh, that the, the aliens would be uh, nonpartisan and be doing the same thing to the Chinese and the Russians, uh, which would be nice,
1: we have the reports we have the reports of it happening to the russians we also have one report of something that happened in russia where the ufos were there and an intercontinental ballistic missile with nuclear warhead was actually activated activated for launch and they in panic had to figure out how to shut it down before it was launched so How do you explain that you have that happening too. I I don't know, but
0: I've always found it interesting that the um, Roswell incident took place near our only atomic base because many years later when I was at Showtime. I started to I actually produced my first movie for them in 1990 uh, excuse me 2001 which was bleacher bums the baseball comedy, but I, I had acquired the rights to uh the book uh bent waters uh yeah we and i i picked the wrong time to bring it to showtime paul because whereas when you were dealing with the hierarchy in the earlier 90s there was a certain belief in it uh the next executive team did not believe at all in ufos and even despite getting great coverage for the book Um, But I also uh, noted that uh, Bentwaters uh, was also a U.S. base in England where nuclear weapons were stored as part of the NATO defense. So I always thought that it was interesting that uh, that UFO incident also involved nuclear uh, observation.
1: Now, uh, I know our listeners will be interested to know that the latest defense bill, thanks to Senator Marco Rubio and... um, He's a Republican, and there's a Democratic senator. um, I'm trying to remember her name, but I'm blocking on it right now. Anyway, two senators, one a Democrat, one a Republican, uh, forced into that defense bill requirements for military reporting on all of these incidents at nuclear bases, henceforth. Uh, And there are rules about the reporting. There'll be uh, reports in secret to uh, Congress, but the Pentagon. Um, and it uh, has to come clean about this under law now because it's been signed by Biden. Uh, there will be a watered down version of it released to the public uh, annually that will be uh, redacted. You know, they're not gonna tell us everything, but um, the, um, the, the ball is rolling now so that uh, Congress and the Senate won't be lied to uh, from this information being withheld. Because when you force the military people who are the witnesses, who have these experiences, to uh, shut up and not disclose anything they know about it because it's highly classified, the information never gets to Congress. So I guess some feel this could be progress. Others are suspicious and say, you know, it just gives them another mechanism to continue lies and cover up. We don't know.
0: Well, Paul, um, you know, it's I, first of all, I want to thank you for producing the Roswell movie. I think you did a great service to all of us out there who believe in these events, and and not just the documentaries, but uh, taking it to a narrative thing was was a great experience. I had a ball, by the way. I went out to Van Nuys Airport when you guys were shooting yes uh, you know as as uh you know obviously Van vanuys was playing uh roswell army air force first field in fact i i got a chance to crawl around in fifi the uh, only surviving b-29 that was flying at that time and that was fascinating Mm -hmm. for me and uh then i got a chance to show the movie at caltech as one of our premieres i'll never forget that day because uh the film broke, unfortunately, and we had to uh, have a 20-minute uh, break right? to show the movie. But, uh, I mean, we, you and I could talk about Roswell forever. I mean, you, you've also uh, done some wonderful uh, projects involving afterlife experiences. Your, your movie, The La- Life After Death Project, is fascinating. Uh, your uh, Marilyn Monroe Declassified project is fascinating. I definitely want to have you come on again and talk about these subjects because they cross over nicely into the movie, the cult movie arena. Uh, But thank you for your time tonight. I thought that I I really appreciate your background on this.
1: Well, this is a great reunion for us, Steve. And, uh, you know, I love talking about the movie. Uh, I think it came out extraordinarily well, and I think it it really did get the word out. And I think more than ever. uh, The public needs to be told uh, the whole truth and nothing but the truth and we're still waiting. I'm tired of waiting.
0: Sure, sure. Well, everybody you've been watching, I should be saying you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. Uh, a podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films. Our guest tonight has been Paul Davids, uh, a wonderful producer, artist, author, and definitely a classic renaissance man. Thank you, Paul.
1: Thank you very much. It was great being with you tonight, uh, Steve, and having this conversation.
0: And Happy New Year to you.